Well, wonderful to have all you out here for our Founders Lecture, Founders Day Lecture. Um, and uh, my privilege to introduce our speaker, who is a product of Wycliffe's, um, uh, what shall I say, inestimable formation. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Uh, Sean Otto. And um, many of you already know Sean, but uh, if you don't know his background, uh, let me uh, say a few words about him and why he is so well positioned and qualified to talk about what he's going to talk about today, uh, which has to do with uh, the word of God is seed, John Wycliffe's evangelical theology, a wonderful topic given who we are and where we're located. Um, Sean uh, graduated with uh, a doctorate, a PhD, uh, from the University of St. Michael's College a couple years ago, working through Wycliffe, however. Uh, and he specialized in research and study of John Wycliffe. He wrote his dissertation on uh, some of his sermons and controversial preaching in later medieval England based on these uh, sermons of Wycliffe. He's published uh, uh, several articles already on aspects of Wycliffe's preaching as well as on um, aspects of other medieval uh, theology like um, Thomas Aquinas and his uh, teaching on original sin and so on, and is currently working on a book-length study of Wycliffe's uh, preaching against the friars, the Franciscans, and why it was he was uh, so um, set against them, at least from a theological point of view. Um, he is the assistant registrar here at uh, Wycliffe. That's perhaps how some of you know him. Uh, but he also, uh, as some of you may know, is an adjunct professor here as well in church history. He's already taught one course. He'll be teaching another course on heresy and orthodoxy in the early church, the eve of the Reformation uh, this summer, is it? That's right. Um, two things to be said about that. First of all, uh, I know from others um, that uh, the course he taught garnered a good deal of praise and um, uh, positive feeling by students. So. You might want to think about taking this course if you're in a position to do that this summer or letting other people know about it. And secondly, um, I find it really unhelpful that he insists on spelling John Wycliffe um, the way he does, uh, out of a kind of, I don't know what, antiquarian uh, pedantic um, emphasis. Because after all, our college has two Fs and an E in it. And um, that really is the standard by which uh, John <laughs> Anyway, we're happy to have Sean here, so please welcome him. Hi, thank you very much, Ephraim. So uh, I'm going to talk about John Wycliffe and his theology. And uh, first thing I want to get out of the way is the anachronism in my title, uh, Evangelical Theology. What can we say? about that. So here's another, a nice little example of anachronism. This is from T.H. White's wonderful book, The Once and Future King. Do you mean to tell me, exclaimed Sir Grummer indignantly, that there ain't no king in grammary? Not a scrap of one, cried King Pellinor, feeling important. And there have been signs and wonders of no mean might. I think it's a scandal, said Sir Grummer. God knows what the dear old country is coming to, due to these lollards and communists, no doubt. So, The Once and Future King is a reworking of Arthurian legends. Uh, so, the real King Arthur, if there was a King Arthur, was certainly predated, certainly predated Lollards and Communists. So, when we speak about John Wycliffe's evangelical theology, we are in danger of anachronism, which is some form of chronological inconsistency. In this case, applying a later concept to an earlier period. So to begin with, we should probably decide what we want to think an evangelical is. Uh, and luckily enough, uh, just a few weeks ago, Glenn Taylor wrote a little article for the Morning Star. So there's a handy dandy definition there from Cambridge Companion to Evangelical Theology. So an evangelical is an Orthodox Protestant, well witless fails our first test, doesn't he? Because uh, Protestantism, of course, is a product of the 16th century. Wycliffe is a product of the 14th. 
who stands in the tradition of the global Christian networks arising from 18th century revival movements associated with John Wesley and George Whitefield. Well, he failed again. He was dead several hundred years before these two men were born. Who has a preeminent place for the Bible in his or her Christian life as a divinely inspired final authority in matters of faith and practice. Well, yes, here we go. This might be a starting point, which we'll get to in a little bit. So keep that one in mind. Who stresses reconciliation with God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, yes, but then I would argue that all theologians in the Middle Ages would argue for this and stress this in their theology. Fifth, who stresses the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of an individual to bring about conversion and an ongoing life of fellowship with God and service to God and others, including the duty of all believers to participate in the task of proclaiming the gospel to all people. Yes and no. Um, it's not so much about individual conversion in Wycliffe, uh, but the work of the Spirit, service to God and others, the favorite biblical book of the Lollards was the book of James, um, much hated by Martin Luther, and the duty to spread the gospel, yes, definitely. In fact, he probably puts later evangelicals to shame. So, to begin with, let's keep these in mind as I go through uh, as I go through my lecture here. Um, but to start with, we need a little context, so I'm going to quickly go through Wycliffe's life and times. So Wycliffe, he might have been born as early as 1331, probably not earlier than that, and perhaps closer to 1335. He was born in Yorkshire. That little red dot is an approximation of where he was born in a place called Teesdale, which is the valley of the River Tees. And in 1356, he was a probationary fellow at Merton. This is the first firm date that we can get for Wycliffe. This is at Oxford. By 1360, he'd moved to Balliol, another college at Oxford, where he held the office of master. He's ordained priest uh, at the latest by 1361, and could possibly have been priested in 1351 by Archbishop John Thoresby of York. He was given a license for non-residence in 1363, which allowed him to hire a vicar and to go to study theology at Oxford. He was described as a Bachelor of Theology in 1369, and his inception as a Doctor of Theology can be dated to sometime between mid-1371 and mid-1372. Wycliffe held several benefices in his career. These are church livings. The first was at a little place called Fillingham, St. Andrew Fillingham, so this is a tiny little village. And there it is in wider context. So you can see, now this is in the same diocese where he was born. So you can see the geographical size of, of the diocese is enormous. And here's a picture of what the church looks like now. So this was his first living, which was a possession of Balliol College. So his college at Oxford arranged for him to have this job. He seems to have been there until 1363 when he got his, um, when he got his uh, license for non-residence and went to Oxford. He later exchanged this living for a little place called Ludgershall, St. Mary the Virgin in Ludgershall. This is what it looks like now. It isn't much bigger now than it was then, but you'll see why he would have exchanged it. Look at the proximity to Oxford. It's very close by, much more convenient. He's able to take care of his spiritual duties. And there is St. Mary the Virgin in the Lord's Hall. In 1362, Wycliffe received a prebend at Oust in the church of Westbury on Trim in Gloucestershire. This is a collegiate church, and this also still exists, Holy Trinity Church. This is actually in suburban Bristol. Now, Wycliffe wasn't actually uh, resident here. He got in trouble for that later. And he held this appointment, which is an appointment without cure of souls, so that he didn't have any parishioners here, until uh, his death. 
Yes, it's what they call a sin cure. And they're great. I don't know why these don't exist anymore. So here's what, here's what it looked like in a state of ruin uh, in the uh, 19th century. At various times in the 1370s, Wycliffe had occasion to serve the English crown. He was possibly a parliament in 1371, and he certainly served on diplomatic mission to Bruges in 1374. And there's Bruges off on the, on the right in Belgium, modern-day Belgium. It was likely through this sort of service that Wycliffe came to the attention of John of Gaunt, who uh, was actually born in Ghent. He is just southeast of uh, Bruges. And uh, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, was to become Wycliffe's lifelong protector. It's also through royal service. There's a nice later, there's a later interpretation of John of Gaunt. Um, it was also through this service that he received the parish of Lutterworth, which is still there. I have yet to make my pilgrimage. Someday, someday. Uh, and there it is, close by to, uh, to Oxford again. So this is where he spent the rest of his life, his priestly, his priestly ministry. Wycliffe's opinions began to cause controversy by the end of the mid-1370s. And attempts to curb his teaching began in earnest in 1377. In February of that year, Wycliffe was called before an assembly of bishops at St. Paul's Cathedral, London. And here's a nice artistic interpretation of that. This is actually in uh, the library at Oxford. Um, and this assembly, he was called to answer questions about his teaching on church church property, which I'll get to in a moment. Opposing Wycliffe were a group of bishops led by then Bishop of London, uh, William Courtney, and supporting him were John of Gaunt, Henry Percy, who's one of the realm's leading politicians, and four Oxford theologians representing each of the orders of friars, Franciscans, Dominicans, Augustinians, and Carmelites. Wycliffe was apparently well known by this time, and large crowds came out to see the proceedings. The assembly did not last very long. Uh, it broke up in chaos after Percy uh, and Bishop Courtney got into an argument, and apparently Percy told the bishop that he would drag him out into the street by his beard. General chaos ensued, during which Wycliffe and his supporters scarpered. Further controversy soon followed, as not long after the failed assembly at St. Paul's, Pope Gregory XI, and here he is returning to Rome, he issued a series of five bulls condemning Wycliffe's teaching concerning church property. There's quite a delay in publishing the bulls, and they did not seem to have been made public until the fall of 1377 on account of the death of Edward III and uh, some, other, some other things. As a result of these, Wycliffe was put under house arrest at Oxford for a short period before the intervention of royal officials set him free. Further attempts to bring Wycliffe to heel followed in the spring of 1378, when he was called to appear before the Archbishop of Canterbury. The meeting took place at the Archbishop's Palace at Lambeth. At this meeting, Sir Lewis Clifford, who was later a, a suspected Lollard, acting as an agent of Prince Princess Joan, the widow of Edward the Black Prince, uh, appeared before the bishops and instructed them not to pass sentence on Wycliffe. The meeting was further interrupted by a group of Londoners who protested on Wycliffe's behalf. In the end, the bishops ordered Wycliffe not to preach the ideas in question, for although they were true, they were dangerous to the lady who might misunderstand them. Despite nearly a year and a half of fairly intense controversy, Wycliffe performed one last formal service to the crown when he addressed the Gloucester Parliament in October 1378, defending the crown's position in the Holy Shackle affair, which involved a breach of sanctuary at Westminster Abbey, when a fugitive from the crown, uh, Shackle, was killed along with a priest near the high altar. Wycliffe's position was that sanctuary should not be extended to criminals of, uh, facing prosecution by the crown, but that they should be turned over to the state. This was Wycliffe's last act of service for the crown. In 1381, Wycliffe was forced to leave Oxford over his controversial stance on the Eucharist. In the spring of that year, William Barton, the Chancellor of the University, organized a committee to investigate and censure two of Wycliffe's opinion on the Eucharist, 
although not naming Wycliffe as their author. Wycliffe responded initially by appealing to the Crown. John of Gaunt personally visited Wycliffe at this point, although we don't know exactly what was said, we do know that he told Wycliffe to be quiet. On 10 May, Wycliffe defied both the censure of the university and Gaunt's command to be silent and published his Confessio, which clarified and defended his position on the Eucharist. This in turn provoked responses from other scholars in the university. And then that same summer, the Presence Revolt broke out. And here's a nice picture of John Ball inciting rebellion. He was actually associated with Wycliffe, although no connection can actually factually be established. So while there was no uh, direct connection with Wycliffe, much of the blame for this revolt was placed at Wycliffe's feet and he was forced to leave Oxford permanently after having spent the greater part of his adult life in the university. The last three years of Wycliffe's life were spent in his parish of Letterworth, and it was during his retirement from the university that he took time to revise his writings and compose new polemical and theological works. Wycliffe's retreat from academia did not, however, mark the end of his involvement in controversy, for while he remained at Letterworth, news of outside events still reached him, and he still got mad about them. Further, Wycliffe's followers were still in positions of influence at the university, and the master's ideas remained of interest there for some time. In the spring of 1382, William Courtney, now Archbishop of Canterbury, called a council to meet at Blackfriars in London. The purpose of this council was to deal with the danger of Wycliffeism, for although Wycliffe himself was not named, the ideas condemned here were drawn from his works and from the works of his followers. 24 articles were condemned, 10 as heretical, 10, uh, 14 as erroneous. Wycliffe wrote a response to the uh, council attacking its conclusions, and the council is referenced in some of his sermons. After the council, Courtney, with the help of the Crown and Parliament, began a concerted effort to eradicate Wycliffeism at Oxford, disciplining Wycliffe's followers there, and receiving recantations from prominent Wycliffeites. Throughout this upheaval, Wycliffe remained at Letterworth and was never personally subject to condemnation, likely as a result of Gaunt's protection, whether directly or indirectly so. It was some time during 1382 that Wycliffe suffered a stroke, which left him partly paralyzed. This he cites, along with a royal prohibition against his going, as a reason for not answering a summons from Pope Urban VI in 1383. Despite the stroke and accompanying health problems, Wycliffe continued to write until a further stroke on 28 December 1384 paralyzed him completely, leaving him unable to speak. He died three days later, 31 December 1384. He died in communion with the church. In fact, if his curate is to be believed, he suffered his fatal stroke while attending mass. And he was buried in the churchyard. It's not until the Council of Constance that Wycliffe was personally condemned as a heretic and his bones were ordered to be dug up and burnt. This did not happen until 1428 when he was disinterred, ritually condemned and burnt, and the ashes scattered into the river Swift. So, Wycliffe's theology. This section I call Predestination, the Church, and Property. So, the foundation of Wycliffe's ecclesiology rests in Augustine's teaching on predestination. Some human beings are predestined to beatification, and some are foreknown to damnation, and these two groups make up the entirety of humanity. This is not, does not make Wycliffe deterministic, however. It is the actions of individuals in time which cause damnation or election. The terms predestined and foreknown refer to God's eternal knowledge of every person's deeds. For Wycliffe, the predestined are the true church. There's an equivalence between the true church and, and, and the predestined. The church militant is the true church as well, but only in the sense that this is a reference to God's eternal knowledge uh, of the church and not humanity's knowledge of the church. In the here and now, humans cannot know who is predestined to salvation and who is foreknown to damnation. 
The real church, the real point for Wycliffe is that the predestinate and the foreknown cannot be mingled in the one pure body of Christ, which is the true church. There can be no salvation outside of this one church in Wycliffe's understanding since the foreknown are excluded from it by definition. The visible church, again following Augustine, is a mixed body of elect and foreknown, although the foreknown are not, of course, part of the true church. Ecclesiastical office for Wycliffe is no guarantee of holiness, not even the Pope can be sure of his place within the true church. It's not until this, the last judgment, that we will actually know who is and who is not part of the true church. Wycliffe writes, No vicar of Christ should presume to assert that he is the head of the Holy Catholic Church unless he has received a special revelation, nor should he even assert that he is a member. Wycliffe makes it very difficult, theoretically, to be Pope. His definition of the Pope's job is that the Pope should weep and moan and pray for the Church all day. Not a very practical job description. Now, this, of course, would seem to open him up to a charge of Donatism, uh, since the holiness of the individual would seem to be paramount. But Wycliffe never rejects the sacramental power of sinful priests. So while a pope, a bishop of Rome, might be uh, foreknown to damnation, his, all of his sacramental functions are still legitimate. Gordon Leff has said that uh, Wycliffe was simply pressing the Augustinian doctrine of predestination to its logical limit when he founded his ecclesiology so firmly on the doctrine of predestination. Now, there's been some debate about whether this would result in a theoretical deinstitutionalization of the church, uh, which would make any sort of actual church polity or ecclesiastical structure um, only possible in, in theory. Um, if we don't know whether these people are foreknown or whether they're predestined, if we don't know they're part of the true church, how do we trust these people? We're supposed to actually um, reform these people. Like the, their holiness is actually paramount to their the higher offices, so it becomes a bit of a mess. Wycliffe goes farther. He says that the sole and only head of the church is Christ. Well, that, that sounds okay. But when you take away the mediation of the church hierarchy, which Wycliffe does, he says that Christ is the sole and direct head of the church, then how do we, how do we function as a church? So this undermines the papacy and their role as the font of priestly power. For Wycliffe, Peter's preeminence, and this is what the foundation of medieval papalism is based on Peter's preeminence among the apostles. So here's uh, Christ handing the keys of the church to Peter. For Wycliffe, he doesn't, he doesn't argue that Peter wasn't preeminent. What he says is that, quote, the preeminence of Peter among the other apostles does not rest in honor, in worldly power or glory, but in altogether their opposites. It should be clear from this that it rests in his sincere faith and humility and in service. Wycliffe argues that the true church, the true pope, sorry, is specifically that bishop who in the highest, most similar, and closest way takes the place of Christ, just as Peter did after the ascension, and we usually say that the Roman pontiffs do. So, while the bishops of Rome are usually popes, it is not of necessity that they are. And this runs contrary to um, ecclesiastical thought that had been developing for several hundred years at this point. In fact, Wycliffe says, frequently since the endowment of the church, the papacy has been separated from the Roman pontiff. So this is a fundamental difference between Wycliffe and many of his contemporaries. For Wycliffe, the sanctity of the man assuming the office is key, at least for the office of Pope, and it seems that for bishops and, and other uh, hierarchs within the church, this is true as well. 
But for papalists, it is the office itself that is holy, sometimes in spite of the occupant. But they say this is unlikely. One for whom the, the entire church prays can, uh, can only assume that they are almost certainly holy. So for Wycliffe, doctrine of predestination forms a centerpiece, the centerpiece of his ecclesiology, once providing the foundation for the identity of the true church and undermining any certainty that any officeholder can have that they are among the predestined. His emphasis on the holiness needed to occupy high office in the visible church, uh, this emphasis opens him up to a charge of donatism, and certainly later of his followers went, went fully to a donatistic position, although Wycliffe himself draws back from that. So, let's talk about the Christian life. In his sermon for the Feast of Nativity, with which he begins his sermons on the saints' days, Wycliffe outlines his understanding of sanctity. He opens by stating that the reason sermons for saints begin with the nativity is that Jesus Christ is the Holy of Holies, at once creature and creator, who should be honored in any sermon whatsoever. In sign of which he writes, in whatever prayer of the saints, God is principally worshipped, so that the people might be helped by the prayer of such a saint, and in sign of this, in sign that this comes about through the mediator between God and humans, Christ Jesus, such prayers are commonly finished per dominum nostrum Christum, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice two things. One, people are helped by the prayers of such saints. Does this imply of such saints? Now, does this imply that they're not helped by the prayers of some other saints? Second, the emphasis is in Jesus Christ as mediator, not on the saint. The first point, that some saints might not help people, is reinforced in the next line of the sermon, where Wycliffe states that the apostles loved Jesus Christ more than Wycliffe and his contemporaries, and without saints' feasts. In fact, he argues that so large a catalog of saints as the 14th century possessed seemed to be reckless, it were better that the church not be burdened with so many solemnities, since neither the scriptures nor the apostles teach this. This is an intimation of why there are only three non-biblical saints included in this collection of sermons. The witness of scripture together with the apostles, this is tradition, the apostolic tradition, is the most sure guide to, to Christian practice. He goes on. The church today is burdened above the rights of the old law of Christ, and especially by canonization, since the endowment of the church, which savors of avarice in offerings and an undue personal affection. Canonizations, and he goes on to clarify that these are Roman canonizations, are tainted by avarice and lead the faithful into improper affection, while at the same time taking their money through offerings. There are saints in heaven more holy than those canonized by the Roman church, Wycliffe says. Unknown saints who do not have feasts and whose bodies have not been translated into fancy sepulchres in the churches. The church should not be burdened with any more feasts, and no one should think that a saint in heaven is either more or less holy because of canonization. Nor does such testimony, it doesn't give fullness to faith. It doesn't, it's not helpful. Rather, faith rests in the supreme sanctity of the Lord Jesus Christ, as much in his divinity as in his humanity, Lucas says. And here we have one of the key pieces to understanding Wycliffe's conception of sanctity. It is Jesus Christ who is truly holy and on whom faith rests. Wycliffe's understanding of sanctity, especially human sanctity, is radically Christocentric. He will go on to demonstrate in nearly every sermon in his Sermones de Sanctus how each individual saint followed Christ in life and morals, and how his readers, listeners, should, be, uh, should do likewise. So Wycliffe's understanding of holiness rests on his dual conviction that scripture and apostolic teaching are the most sure witness, and that Jesus Christ is the standard of sanctity against which the humans should be measured. The key passage being Paul's admonition to the Corinthians, be ye followers, and in Latin this is imitatores, of me as I also am of Christ. 
going to give one quick example from Wycliffe's sermon for the translation of Martin of Tours. So Martin of Tours is not a biblical saint. So why is he included? Wycliffe's sermon for this feast is in fact less about Martin and more about the mendicant orders and their failures. After opening with a short meditation on the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, Wycliffe again establishes the imitation of Christ as the measure of sanctity. He says, Just as in Christ's house there are many mansions, as it is said in John 14, 2, so there are many ways of coming to the end of beatitude. But the shortest way and straightest is to directly follow Christ in morals. So while many forms of life might lead one to beatitude, the best way is to be a close follower of Christ. This, of course, is precisely what the friars fail to do. They do not simply directly follow Christ's habits, but rather add superfluous rules to that, those of the gospel. They should leave off these rules and instead return to the primitive apostolic life. This is a real dig at them because this is what they thought that they were doing. They can learn to do this by following the example of St. Martin. And here we come to the reason for the inclusion of this sermon. Martin is an example of a proper follower of Christ. The example is one of true charity and apostolic poverty. Just in the same way that Martin gave a poor man part of his cloak in the coldest winter, so much more should the friars sell all that they have, and even their basilicas, and they should give this to the relief of those who are suffering loss. Martin was more perfect than the friars when he was a soldier, when he was a monk, and when he was a bishop. So it is not their religious profession and membership in an order that make friars holy. It is simply following Christ, who Wycliffe here calls the abbot of all Christians, that makes one holy and leads to beatification. It seems clear that Martin is only evoked as an exemplar for the friars and for those enamored of the friars' way of life. And he's only an exemplar in so much as he follows Christ, the true abbot in life and morals. Now, there are two other non-biblical saints included in this collection. One of them is Thomas of Canterbury. The other is Pope Sylvester. Thomas of Canterbury was martyred in Canterbury Cathedral uh, and was used as uh, an exemplar of someone who stood up for ecclesiastical liberties. Wycliffe takes the sermon in completely, a completely different direction. He says that these are actually sins. He should never have been uh, a part of a secular, of, of, a, of the government at, at any rate. And he also um, says that the miracles attributed to Thomas shouldn't be believed. We shouldn't believe these because the devil could have performed these as easily as St. Thomas. What we should be, what we should be doing is following Thomas's example of love, Christ-like love, his willingness to lay down his life in the service of God and not in the service of the endowment of the church. Sylvester, Pope Sylvester is an even interest, more interesting case. Sylvester is the Pope who, the legend says, accepted the donation of Constantine, the endowment of the church. And this is something that Wycliffe rails against again and again and again, ad nauseum. But Wycliffe says that Sylvester can still be thought of as a saint, that he probably repented of accepting the donation. And in any rate, we shouldn't be following him in his sin, but in as much as he followed Christ. And he makes the point that even the apostles sinned and sinned gravely, and only Christ is able not to sin. So, these three non-biblical saints provide Wycliffe with an opportunity to teach his audience some important lessons about sanctity. First and foremost, the example of Christ and the apostles is emphasized. These are the ultimate examples for the Christian to follow, and any saint who follows Christ is to be imitated in this regard. Second, only Christ is sinless, and we must not think of saints as sinless, but must realize that all saints have sinned, some of them very gravely. Third, each of these saints provides an opportunity to decry particular abuses and problems in the church. 
from the prideful claims of the friars to a more perfect form of life than other Christians to the problem of the disastrous consequences of the church's endowment. In this way, each of these saints provides an opportunity for instruction in the Christian life, teachable moments, if you will, in how to be a saint. So much for the Christian life. How about the sacraments? I'm going to focus on two sacraments today, um, mostly because these are the two that caused controversy, and then also because he just doesn't say much about them. Now, he does accept all of the seven sacraments as sacraments, um, which is, again, not very evangelical of him in the modern Protestant sense. So, the sacrament of penance. Medieval understandings of the sacrament of penance um, declare that it has three parts. Contrition of heart. This is an inward feeling of guilt over sins committed. Confession of mouth, generally confession to a priest, a regular confession, a confession, and then work, works of satisfaction, and these would be also known as penance. These are things that you do to make up for your sin. Now, the great example for Wycliffe, and he generally follows this, um, but his he places almost all of his emphasis on the first of these, the contrition of heart. His great exemplar is Mary Magdalene. So Mary Magdalene in the tradition of medieval biblical interpretation and going back um, at least as far as Augustine um, is also identified as, as the unnamed sinner from Luke 7 who was a prostitute in, in the city and came in and um, well actually it doesn't say that it says that she was an, a sinner in the city uh, generally interpreted as a prostitute um, and she came in and wiped Christ's feet with her hair. So she is the exemplar of perfect penance, moved by the Spirit to contrition. So the Spirit does have a role in this. Um, that brings us back to our, our fifth point there, what the Spirit had worked in, the, in people in conversion. So Wycliffe has a description of Mary's contrition. He says, how eloquent, therefore, the crying of this woman, who is able to wash with her tears the feet of the man approaching barefoot, that is Christ. And how great the devotion of the woman who was in the habit to use men for sexual pleasure with the adulterous appearance of her hair, to thus wipe the feet of Christ with that expanse. Third was in the habit to deceive men with shameless embraces and kisses, now wishes to humbly kiss the lowest parts of the most worthy man, and who, fourth, was in the habit to constantly rub herself with fragrant, fragrant ointment to chase away the decay of her flesh by lust. Now she devoutly wishes to soothe the feet of the Lord with ointment. So this is why she is so great a model. Her great contrition allows her to be forgiven even her grave sins. Wycliffe gives specific examples that follow from each of these actions. True contrition is in her tears, perseverance in affection is in the wiping of Christ's feet with hair, devotion as in her anointing of Christ's feet, and conformity to the will of Christ as in her kiss. So her four actions are models for other Christians to follow if they would be forgiven their, their sins. Now for Wycliffe, the important point in contrast to um, other medieval theologians is that the unnamed sinner does not make an oral confession. She doesn't say a word. So it would seem, if this is our example, it would seem that auricular confession is not necessary to the removal of sin. This is a persistent theme in Wycliffe's preaching. He says that God alone can truly know the heart of the penitent and so it is God alone who can truly forgive sins. And Wycliffe attacks various uh, positions that say that auricular confession is necessary. And his attack, the emphasis in his attack, is that those who uphold the necessity have no scriptural leg to stand on. The witness of scripture is on his side. 
They're basing their understanding not on what is necessary to the forgiveness of sins uh, by divine law, but on human law. Other treatments of penance in the latter part of the 14th century did not discount the place of contrition in the forgiveness of sins, but they came to the conclusion that confession was necessary to their absolution. Some even ask what effect the priest's absolution has uh, since God removed sin from contrition. Various answers to this question were given. This is a very big problem. So Pope Innocent IV stated that sin is forgiven only with the absolution of a priest. Aquinas, on the other hand, said that the act of confession and absolution, so the sacramental part of penance, makes up for any defect that a sinner might have in their contrition. So while it was taken, contrition was taken seriously by these other thinkers, there's no doubt they all held a place for the sacrament, including of necessity confession to a priest, absolutely necessary to the absolution of sins. And this is rejected utterly by Wycliffe. Central to Wycliffe's interpretation, his conception of the sacrament of penance, is his interpretation of Luke 7. The undeniable fact is that the sinner in the biblical narrative did not utter a single word of confession. And this allowed him to take a stance against other theologians who placed emphasis on the role of the priest in confession and absolution. Other preachers struggled with the biblical record, but for Wycliffe there is no struggle. The penitent did not verbally confess, and she did not need to do so. The accretions of ecclesiastical rites and laws on top of the laws of scripture are superfluous and foolish in his eyes, and they've led to blasphemous claims of friars and priests and bishops who say that they can absolve people of their sins when this is a thing that only God can rightly claim to do. So much for confession. What about the Eucharist? So, this fellow is Thomas Aquinas, as he's known to Wycliffe, St. Thomas. Wycliffe held Thomas in the greatest of respect, so much so that he thought that Aquinas' arguments about transubstantiation were later interpolations by his followers, because he thought that no biblical exegete of such renown and skill could have come to such an erroneous position. So, transubstantiation. The words of institution mark a Eucharistic change in the elements of bread and wine. The substance of bread and wine become the substance of Christ's body and blood, while the accidents remain those of bread and wine. I'm sure you all understand Aristotelian metaphysics. You know what's going on here. So the substance of a thing is the essence of a thing, what makes something what it is, a particular thing what it is. Accidents are things that are not necessary, but that um, a thing has. So, for instance, one of my accidents is that I'm a little over six feet tall, a little over 215 pounds or so, and these are accidents. If I lose a leg, lose a couple of inches of height, gain weight, lose weight, I'm still a human being. So, in transubstantiation, the bread and the wine cease to be what they were. They are no longer bread and wine, but they are really substantially the flesh and blood of Christ. But the accidents, I mean, we've all seen, we've all been to a mass, we've all been to a Eucharist of some kind. We've all seen, we've never seen the host change into an actual lump of flesh. Have we? I mean, there are miracle stories from the Middle Ages and from later that where people claim to have seen this, but it generally doesn't happen. So the accidents of bread and wine remain. It's still a small white disc, but the reality for somebody who believes in transubstantiation is now that this is a subst substantively the body of Christ. Wycliffe had a lot of problems with this start with some metaphysical objections. 
Wycliffe was a Neoplatonic realist in the same sense that, he, that Augustine was. He followed Augustine. So for him, uh, Platonic ideals, universals, had true existence. So this would be an idea like humanity. Okay, so I am what you would call a particular instantiation of the universal human. For Wycliffe, that idea, humanity, has a real substantive being in the mind of God. So, he looks at transubstantiation and he says, what happens to the substance of bread and wine? If they're no longer there, where are they? He thinks that the most likely thing that people are arguing for is annihilation, that they become nothing. For Wycliffe, this is, has disastrous, disastrous consequences. Because if you destroy the substance, if you annihilate the substance of a particular, you also annihilate the universal. Because the universal is a real thing, if you take away, if you annihilate a particular of that universal, then you have damaged that universal, you annihilate that universal, and because this is a substantive part, and speaking about parts in God is, is a little wonky, but this is a substantive part of God, you also annihilate the creator, and the whole universe falls apart. Therefore, it can't be true. Now, he also has some logical objections, and these come from his reading of scripture, because at some point, Christ says, hoc est corpus man, this is my body, but he's holding a piece of bread. So what does that mean? Doesn't it make him a liar if we now say that that bread that he is holding is not bread? But Christ cannot lie, therefore transubstantiation doesn't work. Now he's also got some pastoral objections. And these um, mostly have to do with idolatry. It's common practice in the Middle Ages to worship the host. The priest elevates, the host says the words of institution, elevates the host, boom, there is God come down into a little wafer. We worship that because it is God. That is God's body on the altar. For Wycliffe, this is the basis idolatry. We should not be worshipping this in this way. We there's some technical terms of dulia and latria that I won't get into, but he says that this is actually a big problem because the people who are preaching transubstantiation are making people believe this and it is causing them to be idolaters and it is therefore endangering their souls. So it is pernicious and dangerous from the pastoral point of view. And this is one of his emphases. So, the Eucharist, and this is what ultimately got him in the most trouble when he was condemned, because it became, when he was, as he was discussing this in the schools and as he was writing about it, transubstantiation was not officially, officially dogma uh, in the church. That didn't happen until Trent. Um, but, it was becoming orthodoxy. And he was vociferous. And he refused, as I pointed out earlier, he refused to shut up about it. So finally, in Constance, they, they took up these, and this was, his rejection of transubstantiation was um, one of the big things that, that they condemned. And move on to my my last point about Wycliffe's theology. And this is about preaching. And this is where oh no, actually I'm gonna talk about scripture really quickly. Really quickly. Okay, so scripture. Wycliffe's understanding of scripture was thoroughly medieval. He uh, interpreted scripture uh, in the four traditional senses the literal, or historical, the allegorical, tropological or moral, and the anagogical or 
eschatological understandings. And there's a little rhyme. The literal sense teaches the deeds, allegory, what is to be believed, the moral sense, what you should do. In the anagogical sense, that's where you are striving towards the rough translation. But Wycliffe um, did do some things that were a little unusual. He is one of two theologians to write a commentary on the entirety of scripture in the 14th century. The other is Nicholas of Lyra. Um, and he also had a rather interesting uh, understanding of scripture. So he has five levels of scripture. And you can go and read this in his work on the truth of Holy Scripture. There's a translation by Ian Levy. So the first and highest level is the book of life from Revelation 2021. 20, and in fact, this book of life became incarnate in Jesus Christ, the Word of God. So the book of life is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God. And we have truths in the book of life, an intelligible being. You don't have to worry about these. There's just, I'm going to go through them quickly here. Truths in the book of life in a genus. Truths inscribed in human souls. And then the lowest form are manuscripts, sounds, and other artificial signs designed to bring in mind to the first truth. So what I want you to see is that this is a hierarchy as we have levels. So you begin at the bottom with the manuscripts, you read and you reread, and you base all of your theology and, in fact, all of human knowledge on scripture for Wycliffe. Uh, and this is so that it brings you up to this highest level so that you can see the Book of Life, the second person of the Trinity uh, in Patria, in heaven. <clears throat> so, yes, he holds scripture to be the font not only of all doctrine, but of all human knowledge. And he consistently says that if you can prove to me from scripture that I am wrong, if you can prove to me that transubstantiation is expounded in scripture, then I will be corrected and I will back down. Of course, nobody ever could, and he would have argued with them if they tried. That's a little bit about scripture, and I just want to say a few words about preaching to end up here. Now this is where I got my title. The word of God is seed. This is uh, from a sermon of Wycliffe on the importance of preaching. The sower goes out to seed, and he sows his seed on the good ground and on the rocks and in the ditches and whatnot. And this is, um, this is a later painting of Wycliffe sending out the poor preachers. Um, that's, there's a little bit of controversy about whether or not he actually did that. But, so Wycliffe, the importance for Wycliffe of preaching uh, can hardly, hardly be overstated. He says that it is the most important duty of those in the holy orders, and in fact is more important than presiding at the Eucharist. After all, when it comes down to it, preaching is what forms faith and converts sinners. The sheer size of Wycliffe's sermon corpus, there are nearly 250 of them, and my thesis is actually based on all of them, not just some of them. It's a lot, thousand, over a thousand pages. Actually, over 2,000 pages. This is also an indication of how important it was. He has sermons for all of the occasions of the year, um, dominical gospels, dominical epistles, and then saints day. And these are clearly designed for the use of other preachers. As I say, they cover all of the lections, but they also have asides. They have little notes in them that say, expand on this, or don't expand on this as the 
uh, as is suitable for your audience. So tailor this sermon to your audience. Moreover, he covers all of the pastoral topics that were legislated. There were, legisl there, uh, were several lists of pastoral subjects that were legislated in the medieval church in England. He covers all of these extensively, um, and they're very pastoral, his, his sermons. They're clearly catechetical, and we have a comprehensive overview of Christian doctrine in these sermons. From basic elements like the creed and the paternoster to more advanced matters such as the nature of the Eucharist. In fact, he goes into uh, questions about the properties of salt, and the properties of lightning, um, all kinds of things. He's very cutting edge for his day. So his preaching on the Ten Commandments, for example, uh, is very extensive. In one series, he has uh, ten sermons, each of which deal with one commandment. His preaching on the Lord's Prayer and the Creed is likewise comprehensive. Uh, he covers the prayer in three different sermons, and the Creed receives full treatment in another. He preaches on more minor topics, and these are the topics that would seem uh, a little dubious to his later Protestant admirers. For instance, he has, two, uh, he has two sermons that cover the bodily senses. Uh, he has sermons that cover the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. He has um, several sermons that discuss vices and virtues. Uh, now, these aren't treated very systematically. Um, they're, although they're treated very extensively, it's more of a process of association and he allows the biblical material to dictate the form in which they, they will take. But again, he holds up he holds up Christ and the apostles as the model of virtue and, and vice, and this is there are dozens and dozens of sermons that do this. Um, and I've already talked about the sacraments. He covers these very extensively in his sermons. And all of this, Wycliffe denounces the introduction of novel teaching. He is the true conservative. He fights against the development of false doctrine. He is saying that all of these other people are imposing new human laws on top of the perfect law of Christ. And he gets very angry about it. But I don't want to leave you uh, with the impression that Wycliffe is just negative. He's full of negativity. If you if you read him, there is a lot there. He has a lot to be angry about. Um, but he can also be very uplifting and pastoral, and I want to take that as my last example. And a good example is his preaching on the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, he divides into seven um, petitions. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This corresponds to the Father, Wycliffe says, not that he be sanctified in himself, he's already holy, but that we honor his name and conform ourselves to his holiness. Your kingdom come. This corresponds to the Son, whose kingdom, the teleological goal of the church, is desired fervently. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This corresponds to the Holy Spirit. So he's taken the first three and assigned each of them to one of the persons of the Trinity. So conformity to the will of God and the fulfillment of his justice is the only way to be pleasing to him. And this is a bridge to the next four petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. So this is that our bodily needs might be met to give us strength for our pilgrimage. We're all pilgrims on the way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that our spiritual needs might be met, the burden of sin removed, and we get our spiritual strength for the pilgrimage. Lead us not into temptation, not that God not tempt us, but that we not be led into temptation and sin, following on from our spiritual needs. And free us from evil. That we be freed conditionally from pain, he says, because we still need to suffer physically, and unconditionally from guilt. Now, after that, this is how he opens. 
It begins at the beginning, and this is what I want to leave you with. Our Father, not my Father. He writes, Since we are all brothers, we ought to love one another. And this is the reason why it is better said, Our Father, rather than Lord God, or another name of God not so well chosen. This is the beginning, the means, and the end of theology for Wycliffe. Love. Love is everything. And that's what I want to leave, leave you with, and you can decide whether or not that's evangelical.